Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Hello, I'm John Stevens, and I'm here with Matt Russell. And today, I am really excited about this podcast because we're going to be talking with Dr. Mark Boom, who's the president and CEO of Methodist Hospital. And I've been really blessed and fortunate to be on some calls with him, uh, with the Texas Methodist pastors and some leaders in Houston a couple of times. And I, I thought it would be really helpful to invite him to join us and just ask some questions. We've yeah. given people out in the social media world the opportunity to ask questions that we could communicate with him. I'll tell you, Mark is a really impressive uh, individual. Houston Methodist is one of the 100 best companies to work for. It's been rated one of the top hospitals in the U.S. by U.S. News and World Report. And uh, not only is he the president and CEO of the hospital, he also has a, an internal medicine. He, he still practices medicine on the side. That's amazing. In a little office and sees people from time to time. Uh, one of the things that I think will be interesting to hear from him is that the, uh, he is on a call every morning with the heads, the presidents, the CEOs of all of the hospitals and uh, institutions that are part of what's called the Texas Medical Center. The Texas Medical Center here in Houston is the largest medical center in the world. Hmm. It has 49 institutional partners. Amazing. And so they are really at the cutting edge. And not, not long ago, actually about a week ago, Houston Methodist made national news as they were engaged in this plasma therapy with coronavirus uh, patients. So I'm really excited that he will be able to share some thought with us. And I really uh, look forward to just hearing from him. Yeah. Um, we're really uh, fortunate to be in a city with folks um, like Mark in it and is doing this kind of cutting edge work and leading this cutting edge work and in a denomination that is our root systems are in the health of uh, the common good. And so to have, have a, um, a, a hospital like this in the, the, the heart of the city and, and state, um, there's something about that. Although I'm not doing anything about it. I know folks, good folks are doing things about it. You know, a lot smarter folks than I am. Well, the great thing about Houston Methodist, it is a, it's an outreach ministry of the Methodist church mm -hmm. through our conference. And it's been around for a hundred years. It actually started in 1919 with the Spanish influenza outbreak. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's interesting that they, they start, this, the hospital began as a response to uh, a pandemic. Hmm. And now we find ourselves in, in these days. Yeah. Hello. Uh, hey. Greetings, are y'all ever see me okay? I can, yeah. yeah. You look great. <laughs> Y'all there, you look so comfortable there. Uh, <laughs> in, our, in our little studio. Yeah, very nice. In our, in our bunker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel a bit like that too. Mark, I want to really thank you for being with us just a little time. I have, uh, I really want to just tell you, I benefited a lot from those early calls that we had uh, where we were able to call in with Bishop Jones and with other Methodist pastors. And that, that really put my mind in the right place to know that it was the right thing to do yeah. to talk about not holding church services for us at Chapelwood and, 
and, and your resource, your conversation along with Dr. Drews, I think was on the call was very, very helpful. And, uh, so I've already, we've already done a little bit of this where I've introduced people. You are the president and CEO of Houston Methodist. And one of the things that I think would be very interesting, uh, to hear is you are on a call. Uh, my understanding is either every day or, or most days with the heads of the Texas medical center, which if people are not aware of, it, it's the largest medical center in the world, 49 member institutions, MD Anderson, Texas children, so on and so on. But I think you're in a place where you can give us like, where are we now with this? Um, you know, sure. I think people are familiar with it, but where are we now, especially in the U.S. and in Houston particularly? Sure, happy to talk about that. And, and thanks. Yeah, actually, uh, yesterday was the first day we took a break from our 7 a.m. call uh, in probably three plus weeks, uh, yeah. which we all uh, welcomed, but uh, kicked right back in this morning. And it's actually a call among... Uh, about uh, 10 or so of the institutions, so Houston Methodists, CHI St. Luke's, Memorial Hermann, uh, Texas Children's, uh, MD Anderson, Harris Health, uh, Texas A&M, uh, UTMB, Baylor College of Medicine, UT uh, Health Science Center here in town, and I think I got the whole list. I apologize if I left anybody off as I go from memory, but uh, and it's a great group, and we're collaborating really, really uh, effectively and well, and uh, it's a very unprecedented situation, obviously. We always collaborate well during hurricanes, but but even in my own system, which is you know eight hospitals spread out through all of Houston, Oftentimes what's happening, you know, in one part of town is very different from another part of town and, and uh, you know, a lot of sort of decentralized decision making for this centralized decision making makes a lot more sense, both in terms of my own institution, our own institution, as well as as we collaborate and coordinate across the uh, Texas Medical Center institutions. So let me give you uh, kind of the, the Houston Methodist numbers as sort of a proxy, I will say, as we look at uh, across all of the institutions, we're seeing similar trend lines. So if we roll back uh, now, um, you know, all of a sudden uh, getting to be uh, not quite a month ago, but we go back to uh, March 11th, 12th, which is right when the first community spread happened in Houston, we had three or four patients in, in one of our hospitals. Um, put that in perspective, we run about 18, 1900 uh, beds a day. Um, you know, some of those are uh, medical surgical beds, around 1100 of those, about 300 plus are ICU beds. And then the rest are, you know, neonatal intensive care and a bunch of, you know, other, other uh, obstetrics and other uh, uh, areas that are not really you know, appropriate for this purpose. So that the number we've been watching is really 1450, 1500 beds that uh, are our traditional capacity. Uh, and back then we had three or four patients in house. They were all travelers. Um, today we have 147, I believe the last number was, I saw an hour or two ago. Um, you know, so still about 10% of our overall adult capacity, but sort of ramping up day after day after day. And keep in mind on a normal day, we're 85% full. So, you know, there's, it's not like all that capacity is sitting there available. What we did was we stopped elective procedures, did a lot of other techniques to bring our census down. And so now our overall census is in the 72, 73% range. But if I took ICU, which is really where the crunch could potentially happen, uh, you know, 30 plus percent of our ICU capacity is for patients with COVID or suspected COVID at the present time. Mm -hmm. We managed to kind of get it down to about 45% uh, capacity without COVID. So, you know, we're about three quarters of our capacity now and ramping up each day. Uh, so we have lots of strategies in place to increase that as need be. 
on the on the good side, the the line we're seeing right now much more approximates a linear trend going up rather than an exponential trend, which That's is great. reassuring. But uh, nonetheless, you know, uh, it's still a trend and it's still going upwards. And so we're watching that very closely. And I can talk about modeling and some other things that we're all doing. And you could impute sort of similar numbers across the Texas Medical Center as a whole. Houston Methodist has about 20% market share for the adult population in Houston. So, you know, roughly 5x if you want to look at the entire population of Houston across all the different hospitals on the on the numbers I would quote. Yeah. Well, Mark, I don't know if you've ever met the Reverend Dr. Matt Russell. He's one of our executive pastors here and does a lot in uh, the Houston community. He has for a lot of years. He was at St. Paul's so for a while, so he was down yeah, close right down to you guys. Yeah. 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 But uh, he's he's been doing this podcast with me and I know he had a couple of questions to ask as well. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And it's just, uh, John and I were talking offline how, um, what a blessing it is to have you in this community and, um, and the work that you're, you're spearheading. Um, one of the things that John and I did was to kind of put out on a social media, just, uh, letting folks ask some questions and, uh, what questions we'd want to ask uh, of you. And a couple of them were one, um, how long will the social distancing last? Uh, um, and then, uh, the other was, um, should we, be wearing masks at this time? I know the CDC has put out some things and what are some of your uh, um, uh, recommendations along those lines? Sure. Um, well, yeah, I, I wish I knew the exact answer to the first one, but I'll give you my best cut at it. It's, okay. it's going to be with us for a while. Um, when we look at, and this will be one of the key messages everybody should take away from today, you know, social distancing is critical to make to saving lives, to making sure that we don't end up with a situation where, you know, this spreads literally out of control because it, it, it truly gets out of control. At some point, it's unstoppable and it overwhelms everything. And of course, we've seen markets where it has done that, but quite frankly, could even be worse than that if, if things are not controlled. And so that social distancing is really key. So the, the answer to that question, you know, to a certain extent depends on how well we socially distance. If we do a really good job, sort of rip the Band-Aid off, you know, take all the sacrifice and all the challenges that we're going through and do that right, uh, it's shorter than if we don't um, when we look at all of the modeling. And so that's one really fundamental issue. And I think from looking around the community, we've done a pretty good job, but not as good a job as we could do. Um, there's, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to measure, of course, but there's cell phone data that people look at and we get a D uh, as a community on, on their grading scale as, wow. as to how much diminishment we've seen. Wow. And so that's going to be a, a key fundamental thing. One key also, whereas we may on the downside of this slope emerge and emerge to a new normal, it is not going to be normal quote unquote, the way we used to see it. it. There's going to be an extended period of time where kind of the rules of, of how we live are going to be quite different. None of us know exactly what that looks like, but I think we should expect that vulnerable populations will still stay somewhat isolated. I think we should expect that not social distancing as in stay home, don't go to work, but social distancing in terms of the practices we have are going to be quite different. On your masking question, Really, the theory around that continues to evolve and the data around that continues to evolve. Um, CDC is now suggesting that people wear masks when they're in public, like going to the grocery store or other places like that. Uh, the rationale really is less about if, I, if I'm going to the grocery store and I put a mask on, it's less about protecting myself. There may be some degree of that, but the main degree of this is protecting me when I'm wearing the mask from accidentally 
infecting others and infecting surfaces there. Because if I'm early and I'm not say I have the disease, I don't know it, I'm in a two or three day period before I'm symptomatic and uh, you know, I may already have the disease, but I'm not mm -hmm. symptomatic or maybe 20 or 25% of people are asymptomatic. And so they don't even know they have it. That if I cough, if I clear my throat, if I sneeze, if I, you know, allergy season, everything else for other reasons, I might unwittingly, you know, put droplets someplace, somebody touches, touches their eye, touches their nose, touches their mouth, uh, and they may infect themselves. And so with everybody wearing a mask, that should decrease that spread. And frankly, also, as long as somebody's not, you know, messing around with their mask, which is one of the challenges with masks, people tend to put their hands to their face even more often when they wear a mask. And that's a challenge with it. But if people can learn, like we all, I mean, I still remember medical school when I started wearing a mask and scrubbing into surgeries and how hard it was not to, you know, you're staring you're not allowed to touch anything and you know you'd sit there and your nose is itching and you just sit <laughs> it for for five minutes waiting for it to go away i mean we all have to kind of learn to do that and be real conscious of, of not doing those things so again masks are now recommended by the cdc not everybody's wearing them but uh but it is useful we've chosen in the healthcare environment to go to universal masking as well in the clinical areas to protect mm, our patients so all, all staff are, are wearing a mask in mm. a clinical environment not necessarily in some of the back office environments so mark back on the social distancing you say in houston gets a d that's not a passing grade <laughs> no no when i went to school i i, I would have never made it home alive <laughs> right um, well, but I, on the weekend it's getting to a c but, but basically they're looking at distances and you know this caveat this right i mean yeah. this is distances cell phones are traveling and certainly some markets are more spread out and everything else but it looks at the at, at how much does each individual and then they aggregate the data i mean it's much in the way you know ways or other things like that work yeah. and looks at how much um, diminishment has there been and you're seeing about a 40 45 percent decrease which is really good and i could argue theoretically that on top of that so that's already suggesting there's distancing of course you know, people aren't going to the grocery and when they do, they're using a lot of safe techniques. And hopefully when they're at their employer, uh, you know, they, if they're still in a business that's working, they're using a lot of other things. So there's more to it than that, but it still suggests that we're probably not quite as effective as we need to be. Yeah. There, there's a mindset from some people I talk to, and I know a lot of people in oil and gas and they're strug that's struggling now. The economy is struggling. So you, you're hearing a lot of people saying, looking at our community, we're not New York, we're not Detroit, we're not New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, and there's a fault, there is a false sense of security, it seems like, that people think, well, Houston's not going to get it that bad. So maybe we can go huh. back to work. Maybe this is overblown. Maybe this is these pockets, but not going to be everywhere like this. What do you say to, to people who, who say that or believe that? Well, I think without a doubt, the virus is here. It's spreading in our community. I mean, we see evidence, you know, if I look at our data of uh, more and more people testing positive. Now, some of that gets, you know, messy to look at because more testing availability is there. Yeah, sure. But of those who are being tested, a higher percentage of them are positive, which shouts out to me that the prevalence, how many people in the community have the disease is higher. Um, and we're, we're seeing that, that march up pretty significantly. So we know it's here, we know it's spreading. Mm -hmm. It's simple math. If we don't do these things, that will overwhelm us, period. And so until we get to the backside and see this curve going down and then have judicious ways to uh, sort of release some of the restrictions, that would be devastating, frankly. We will see you know, a rapid, rapid, and, and once true exponential spread at a later part of the curve, 
gets out of hand. I mean, if you look on aggregate across the mm-hmm. world right now, it's an exponential spread. Look at the curve line. I mean, you're adding 100,000 people a day around the world who are infected. We don't want to see that in our population. New York City has 120,000 or something like that infected already. Um, we don't want to see that. And we can keep that down if we all work together. But if we don't and we go back too soon and we release too soon, that's what's going to happen. And ultimately, as hard as this is economically for everybody, that's going to be much more devastating economically if we are shut down to that degree. Mm. Now, there's a balance, and I'm the first to agree with that. And of course, my role is is health, so you know yeah. I'm going to be in the health lane, you know, advocating for the health side. Um, there's no, I mean, I just got off a, a call with the business community. Um, there's a strong consensus that we need to do more, we need to do better right now to stop this, so that we can get back to work yes. and we can get back to work more quickly, because otherwise, this will be very prolonged. So I hear you, what I hear you saying is we need to do as much as possible in the short term that gets us back to whatever the new normal is quicker yeah. as far as the economy and, and yeah. the, the, the oil and gas and all that moving again, that if we half play at this there, that's the danger that it gets spread out even longer. Correct. Exactly. When we when we think of um, the cities around the country that are kind of the epicenter or, or, um, of this New York, Detroit, some of the, the, the conversations that folks are having is that they're being overwhelmed with just um, uh, the, the, the health care system is being overwhelmed. There's not enough masks or equipment or those kinds of things. Um, how, how are y'all doing in that regard um, um, where y'all are at? I, I can speak for us, but I can speak across the Texas Medical mm-hmm. Center. You know, fast and furiously, we've all been working on making sure that we have the appropriate safety gear. I mean, safety comes number one in what what we do and protecting our staff and having that in place is number one. I feel pretty good about where we are. Lots of creativity, you know, both in terms of uh, securing the supplies as well as then using the supplies, you know, as effectively and smartly as we possibly can reuse opportunities with sterilization techniques and, and a number of other things and a lot of really creative solutions to lessen the use like mm. our, our folks created a, a an intubation box so intubating is when you're putting a breathing tube down down someone's throat to down someone's uh, airways to, to to breathe for them well that's a for the person performing the procedure that is a very risky procedure because that's right there, you know, generating a cough, you have aerosolization of some of the, 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 the materials in their mouth and their nose, meaning the virus, um, et cetera. So they created a plexiglass box that can literally go over the patient's head with holes in it for the person to work on and negative pressure, basically sucking out the contents within the box. So it doesn't eliminate the need for PPE, the personal protective equipment. In fact, they will continue to use it. It's a whole nother layer of protection. That we have a, we have, I call it like, it's almost a phone booth on wheels. It's a plexiglass phone booth with, with the, depending on the use, there's one that has some holes in it for some of those arms to use, or the other one literally looks like a phone booth because a nurse may need to go into the ICU room where the patient is simply to adjust a ventilator setting or to adjust a, a setting on an IV fluids or things. And every time to gown up and glove up and everything else um, uses a lot of PPE, but it's also very time consuming. So now they actually have this little plexiglass phone booth and they'll roll in and they can go tweak it because they have complete barrier protection from what, what you'd be concerned about and then roll back out. So lots of just, you know, lots of, you know, good old American ingenuity. Uh, you know, which That's is- great. So Mark recently, uh, Houston Methodist made news, national news with uh, this plasma therapy. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, can you explain, there were a couple of questions people had, not only how are patients responding, I think explain what it is, but how are the patients responding to it? And then some people were even mm. asking if, they, if they've had it, how could they, could they be of help to you in this process? Sure. It's, it's something we're very cautiously excited about it. And, you know, I, I want to temper a little bit of the excitement to make sure people understand this is in, you know, it's, it's a research project right now. There's good theoretical reasons for it to work, but, but we need to sort through those. So what this is, it's a very old technique. And if you look at Houston Methodist, we were founded in 1919 during the Spanish flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. And people use this technique during the Spanish flu pandemic. And what it is, is if, if, if I get some sort of illness, my infectious disease, my body is going to make antibodies to that infectious disease, usually showing up uh, one kind of antibody in the relatively short term and another kind in the long term. And it's actually a type of testing we use all the time at trying to sort out where people are in certain infections, hepatitis, and a number of other infections that we do. So the idea here is that between those antibodies and possibly some other factors in the liquid part of the blood, what we'd call call it the plasma of the blood or the serum. Those are slightly different things, but basically the same idea, which is the liquid part of the blood. All of these things are circulating there. And so if you can take that from somebody who's a couple weeks out from an infection and they've formed all those antibodies and other factors, then give them to somebody with the illness, that may help them. So what we did was we got emergency approval from the FDA to attempt that in a couple of quite ill patients. We've now done a whole, a whole host of those patients over the last uh, seven, eight, nine days. Started with two, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. And, you know, we're cautiously optimistic what we're, by what we're seeing. These are really sick patients. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things being yes. done to try to help them. So sorting out exactly is it working or not um, is, is not a, an easy thing to do, but we're, we're cautiously optimistic. Very importantly, this is all the precursor to what's just kicking off across many, many institutions around the country. We're collaborating with Baylor College of Medicine here also in the Texas Medical Center. And that's a multi-center randomized controlled trial of this to really understand its safety and its efficacy. If it works, um, and, and the other piece right now, it's being used in sick people, really sick people, but there's two other potential uses. One would be in healthcare workers or other frontline people as a preventative measure. And there's other types of situations where we give some kind of passive immunity that way uh, to people who are potentially being exposed. And the other might be in sick people in an acute care hospital bed to prevent them from, you know, maybe with some sort of indicators, that's what we'd have to sort out who's at highest risk of declining and ending up needing ICU care, and then trying to prevent them from declining and going into the ICU. If all of that works through the study, then theoretically at least, we can, we collectively, the medical, uh, you know, medical uh, profession can actually manufacture the antibodies that are working. And that could become a very scalable treatment. Wow. But where we're hoping is that, you know, hopefully, of course, it helps people um, who are critically ill, but the real huge hope I have is that it helps people who get sick come to the hospital and keeps them from getting really, really sick and going in the ICU. Obviously, that would save lives. Yeah. But also, when we think about how to turn back on the world, you know, if we knew that, okay, some people are going to get sick, but we'll get them in the hospital and we can prevent them from getting really sick and dying and needing ICU beds and everything else, that would dramatically change this calculus, right? I mean, if mm -hmm. this disease instead of having a, you know, 1.4% mortality had a, 
you know, 0.1% mortality like right. the regular flu or even lower, it would change the whole dynamic pretty dramatically. And so there's a lot of hope for that and other treatments uh, in the earlier phases, long lead, you know, leading up to a vaccine ultimately as the, you know, what could finally sort of put the stake in this. So, so if someone, if someone had COVID, they tested and they've recovered positive, it, or, are, if they are willing to help, are, are you looking for people like that? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, I can easily get you a, a flyer that we have with the phone number to call. People have to be a couple weeks post, sure. uh, you know, a documented infection of COVID. They can't have a whole bunch of other underlying health conditions. So they have to otherwise be relatively healthy. And then they'll undergo testing to make sure that, you know, indeed the antibodies are there and we can test for the effectiveness of that. And then it's just like sitting there and do, giving a blood donation. You sit yeah. there for about an hour and they pull off this plasma, plasma from you. Um, one donation can treat two patients and uh, people can, because it's not a high volume, like, like a blood donation would be, you can actually donate twice a week. So wow. one individual can help for potentially That's help fantastic. for us. So is, that is very, yeah. very excited about this. So I'm happy to get that forward or over to y'all that you can share that'd with be, your, that'd your, be great. Uh, listener, your congregation. So thank you. Yeah. That's great. One of the things also um, somebody asked us about this more recent, stuff that came out about, you know, there's the droplet thing and now there's this aerosol, bioaerosol that it can exist in the mm -hmm. air. Uh, should people be concerned about that? Is that where the, the wearing the masks now more often, is that where that comes from? Or is this aerosol, I don't even know how to say it, aerosolization? Uh, Very is, good. Yeah. I, I came close. <laughs> I broke it up in small pieces. I can, I can do that. What what have you what are you, are you hearing about that? Yeah, so there's there's been a, a couple smaller studies. Um, you know, they've been criticized a little for their um, methodology. There's also always the question of sort of clinical meaningfulness. Um, really, the preponderance of data still suggests that this is droplet spread, and that you know the reason for masks is to block the droplet transmission, etc. That's not to say in certain unique situations there couldn't be some more aerosolization of this. Certainly in high risk settings like a hospital setting yeah. where you are intubating somebody where you're doing procedures, you can actually create that aerosolization. And that's why sometimes there's higher risk for it. Um, but there's pretty darn good science around the six feet. You know, it's nothing, of course, is nothing's 100%. This is an evolving situation. It's a virus we haven't dealt with before, but there doesn't appear to be anything dramatically different from that standpoint from the flu or many other respiratory, uh, you know, respiratory viruses that are spread through droplet transmission. Um, so the science still really supports the, the six foot distancing, you know, um, wearing a mask. I mean, look, you can't go wrong if you have a simple mask, uh, you know, to, to wear in public like that. It, it, it can't, it, it really don't see probable harm other than the messing with your face kind of thing. If you are, you put it on and the next thing you know you're constantly adjusting and messing with it i mean you know you have the the, the possibility for self-inoculating even more than you would have if you didn't wear the mask so hmm. you have to really control that in in the same setting i mean if i go to the supermarket without a mask on and i you know obviously have to handle groceries and other things but i'm doing my hand hygiene effectively i leave for you know do that right after i load the groceries in my car you know i mean pretty much told somebody I went to the grocery store the other day, I probably did my hand gel 15 times through the course of that experience, um, yeah. which is the right thing to do. Yeah. That's probably safe. If I go there and I wear a mask and now it's bugging me and I'm handling all these groceries and now I'm up there fiddling uh -huh. with the mask over and over again, 
I worry about that actually is causing risk to me as the wearer of the mask. So you really have to manage those sort of behaviors and be, be very cognizant of it. As I, as I joked, but it really was true. As medical students, we all sort of learned how to, you know, be sterile and, and not mess with these things. And it's not easy. Your nose will itch, your mouth will itch. You'll, you know, you we all have this habit of touching our face all the time. So that's, really actually, that, though, that's actually great advice for lay people when it comes to medical stuff is that, you're wearing a mask and you could actually be touching your face more, more. and thinking the mask is helping you. And actually it, that's it's right. not, that's you're that's defeating right. yeah, the purpose. I've just, touched, yeah. I've just touched a contaminated surface and I'm not wearing a mask and I'm really good at not touching my face versus I'm wearing a mask and I touch a contaminated surface and now I'm fiddling with the mask. I actually think there's good cause to think that could be worse. So you have to, you have to balance all that on balance. If you don't touch your face, I think the masks can be helpful in public as the CDC is recommending mm-hmm. because I'm not going to accidentally infect surfaces that, you know, that might, you, you might come behind me and touch. Um, yeah. But again, that's, that's probably the bigger mechanism, not, not me being protected by the mask, but uh, us all sort of as that social compact, uh, you know, protecting each other by wearing a mask. That's great. Matt, you got a question? Yeah. I, I'm wondering today, what are you on your radar? Are you most concerned about? And then also where are you finding the most hope? Thanks. That's a great question. You know, really the main concern is rate of spread. Um, and if this gets out of control, that's why we, we've, we were all doing all these things to, to really urge everybody to play their role. I mean, this is a, we're all in it together kind of, kind of situation for, for sure. Uh, with that, I have a lot of hope too, because I think humans um, are, are pulling together. I mean, you know, obviously we see some negatives out there. We always will when a crisis hits, but by and large crises like this bring out the best in everybody, whether that's watching our employees here do wonderful things or whether it's watching the community rally together and, you know, all the different things done to help bring PPE to hospitals or support hospital workers or support the frontline uh, emergency care workers, you know, and people really doing their role um, is something that, you know, certainly gives me uh, a great deal of hope and, and appreciation, frankly. Once some, somebody ask about testing, you know, there's yeah. been a, there's been a lot of debate about, testing and there's been a lot of blaming about testing and not having enough testing. How are we doing in Houston as it relates to testing? And will there be tests at some point that can either be self-administered or a blood test or something that has a, hmm. a faster result? Um, then maybe now I, I hear different stories that we have a 15 minute test and some that takes two weeks to get or a week or whatever to get back. Sure. So, so the standard testing right now is what's called <laughs> PCR. Um, it's you, you do a nasal swab or a nasopharyngeal swab in the back of the, the nose and throat, uh, and through essentially amplification uh, uh, mechanism, they look for tiny bits of genetic material. Um, that test in and of itself takes several hours to perform, and then you know logistically, once you have to figure out collecting the sample, delivering the sample, etc., um, it takes longer. So across our system, where we're doing this in one location, that's about a 15, 16 hour turnaround internally to do that, which is actually about as good as you can get it. I mean, short of if I had one sample, I could walk it there and I could, you know, probably do it in four hours, but sure. we batched that and a yeah. bunch of other issues like that. The, the sending out tests, and that's what most people are getting in the community right now are problematic really because of backlog of, you know, LabCorp, Quest, a lot of the national, um, national uh, testing organizations because they're overwhelmed. Yeah. They're just getting massive numbers of <clears> this. And so you're seeing three, four day turnaround time, which if you're a patient at home and you're going to be quarantined anyway, you know, and you're not really particularly sick is 
far less than ideal. You'd of course like to get the answer, but from a clinical perspective, it may not actually matter that much. Um, again, we'd like to do it quickly, let me be clear, but may not have relevance clinically. Whereas in the hospital setting, you really need to know, you know, are you dealing with it or not for a whole host of reasons. So then there are um, other types of testing that are coming out, um, running the gamut from, you know, a five minute test where you can get a five minute positive and about a 15 minute negative. So, you know, it's not mass capability. Um, you've also got some equipment that's getting released where it's much more automated. So that it's still a pretty manual process, what I described for the 16 hours or so. Um, that'll speed things up uh, dramatically and you can do much larger scale testing. So you'll see institutions like ours, I heard this from UT uh, just on a previous call today, where we think within a matter of a couple of weeks, you know, we hopefully can get to thousands of testing capacity a day and we can see wow. uh, the community do that as well. Where it's gonna mainly be relevant is as we think about getting out of this situation, testing has to be a huge part of that. We need to be able to very quickly get results, very quickly follow up on results. You know, kind of, we'll be playing, I think, this game of, you know, kind of whack-a-mole kind of deal where, you know, you're gonna see a small outbreak and you have to figure out how to follow it, maybe in very local areas, do some quarantining and other things, uh, you know, and then you're gonna go over here and do it again. And to do that, you have to have uh, massive testing capability. You also have to have a very large public health infrastructure. So that's gonna be an area where a lot of investment, I think, has to, has to follow. If you look at Texas and you look at testing per, you know, a million people or testing per 100,000, you know, whatever your benchmark is, um, we're in the bottom five to eight in the country, um, the United States, up until a week or so ago, was way behind the rest of the world. We've been catching up, but that's especially because of the mass testing that's really started in places where the outbreak is is particularly severe. Uh, he, Texas is still um, lagging as a whole um, behind uh, much of the rest of the country on that one. Yeah, I think you'll see that change a lot over the next couple of weeks, but we're still behind. Is that is that um, have to do with just the resources that we have deployed to that? What's the what's the reason for the the lag on yeah. on, on those testing, on the testing? It's really the fact that if you go back three months ago, you know the the kind of public health infrastructure across the country, you know, with the CDC stood up a test of their own. They had, you've read all this, but yeah. they had problems with that. It slowed things down. They didn't ramp okay. it up. You know what we did? I mean, we did our first test on a trial run basis, not a patient with symptoms, but, but as, a, as a trial in January. So we had it internally in January and started turning it on, you know, solid three weeks ago. Frankly, we could do far more tests than we do today if we just had more equipment and more reagents and some other things, but those have all been on very sh short supply nationally. So we're running, you know, 250, 300 tests a day now. So it's a very solid number. Like I said, everybody who needs to be treated, who's coming to us needs to be treated, but that's a a selected population. When I mean that, it's people who are sicker, who've already passed a screen with their physicians. They're coming in, getting tested. So, you know, actually we're, we're probably admitting uh, 40 to 50% of those individuals who get tested actually get admitted into the hospital. Someone also- Not who get tested positive, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah. Someone also said they had read a, a, a study somewhere, I guess, at I think John Hopkins about hmm. um, Italy and New York City, the hospital systems, and becoming overwhelmed had to do with, they were using, the way they put it was conventional intake processes, but this is an unconventional situation. And I guess, you know, they were asking as it relates to a pandemic, how are you at Methodist and the other hospitals thinking in terms of operating hmm. differently? I don't know if this is connected to these pop-up 
um, hospitals that they're putting in convention centers, if that's connected to this conventional versus pandemic type way of doing things. But can you speak to any of that? Sure. So, uh, you know, in terms of the, it's kind of a bifurcated question. Let me get the front end, um, which is, you know, when one comes to one of our emergency care centers now, there is a front line intake process where people really get bifurcated into, okay, you need to go down a path of being evaluated for COVID or you are here for some other reason. And there's no reason, you know, on a, on a, a quick screen to think that you might have COVID. Of course, the higher the prevalence of the disease in the, the community, the more people who may be coming in for something else who may also have COVID. So that, that's something we're watching closely. So that's handled very differently than in, in regular, you know, quote unquote, regular times. Yeah. We've done this with H1N1 and other times where um, the flu has been particularly uh, uh, significant. The other question really comes down to what, what I'd call surge capacity, which is, you know, right now, as I, I mentioned earlier, we're, we're using about 30% of our ICU beds for patients with COVID or who are being tested for COVID. We have about 45% of our ICU beds are being used for other purposes, which is far down from the 75, 80% we usually have, but we turned off all of our you know, routine care and, and surgeries and a bunch of other things um, to do that. So we still have about 25% of our ICU, typical ICU capacity available to surge into COVID, which on the curve we are, we're, we're seeing, that's going to be a matter of days um, before yeah. we use that, maybe a week, um, if we don't see an acceleration. We have plans then in place where we could literally double that capacity, and that's by taking lots of other sites of care. So, you know, if, if when you go to surgery, you might be in a pre-anesthesia area where they're actually, you know, starting to give you some of the drugs and get you ready for surgery and other things, or you might come into a recovery room after surgery. Well, right. we're doing, you know, less than half as many surgeries as we would normally do, far less even on the outpatient side, um, again, for bring up capacity. And so a lot of those areas can turn into ICU space, et cetera, et cetera. And so we can, you know, easily is too strong a word, but fairly promptly and without too much national, you know, too much extreme difficulty, probably double our ICU capacity. Now there's staffing issues, many other issues. It's, it's not, it's not easy at all. Um, and so that allows a great deal more surge. But after that, you have to really get creative internally in what I call surge in place. And then after that, you have this issue of, do we need additional hospital capacity mm. outside, which are the field hospitals, convention sure. centers, all of those kinds of things. Mm. There's active work going on at the county and city working in collaboration with the hospitals and planning those kinds of things. Knock, you know, knock wood, we're not there yet. And I sure hope and pray we never have to go there. But of course, we're preparing for all, all eventualities. I think this next seven to 10 days, when we see what curve line are we on, uh, you know, first, some of the modeling will tell us whether we can get by with, for example, a doubling or a doubling and a half of, of, of ICU capacity within the institutions without needing those, or whether we truly have a problem and have to go more broadly than we just don't know the answer. You kind of you kind of ask the next question for Houston. I've seen different things. You said maybe the next week. I know there's been talk on the news. You know we're at April sixth today. What is today? We yep. are. We already talked about how time is irrelevant these days. It's just <laughs> every day is the same. It's yeah. like Groundhog Day. <laughs> but that, and then I've heard that it won't be till May sixth that Houston sees it, its its peak of the apex. And so we we see New York is having that. Detroit, these big cities are hitting the surge that needs all this other field hospitals and everything else. Yep. Do you have a, a modeling or a timeline of thought of as far as Houston or Texas? Mm. Are, are we still on the upswing? And, and what do you see as sort of the top of this curve for us? 
Yeah, we most definitely are still on the upswing. No, no question about that. Um, lots of models out there. They are directionally consistent, but of course, you know, a model is just that. It's a model, and I mean, every single model is wrong by definition, right? Because none of us have a crystal ball. But uh, you know, one of them is going to end up being better than some other. It's like predicting the stock market, right? People can always look at it, and afterwards, they're like, "Oh, look how good our model was," right? But then there were ninety other ones that, that weren't so great. Um, so, but but if you look at some of the main modeling sites, one of the ones we use a lot from a more aggregate basis um, externally is University of Washington IHME site. You can Google that and find it. It's a very reputable site that has state by state data. Now, you know, when I pulled up their state by state data for Texas on Friday, you know, it was telling us a March 6th, if my memory serves correctly, yeah. peak. And when I pull it up today, it's telling us something like an April 17th peak at a much lower peak. So that's actually a, a good thing, good. but it's gone back and forth based on, you know, what they're seeing. So that's a very broad level one. That's Texas wide. We have a couple models, UT School of Public Health. Dr. Eric Borwinkle has been very active in doing modeling for Houston. His most recent model suggested a peak towards the end of the month. Uh, cumulatively by that peak, about 62,000 cases in the city. So put that in perspective, you know, we're what, you know, 22,000 something that are that are known at the present time. I think that's underestimated by a factor of at least two or three. So let's say that maybe there's five or 6,000 cumulative cases. So you're looking at a lot more cases and a lot more pressure on the hospitals in that model. And that one then tails out um, to about mid-June up to about 110, 115,000 cases. Um, but, but the tail, you know, kind of gets small. And while we're on that down tick of the tail, there, there should be some strategies to start normalizing. We have an internal model within the Texas Medical Center that looks at how are we tracking uh, other cities. And right now we are very parallel with New York, with Lombardi, uh, Italy, with others. Now parallel, we're a little lower on a normalized basis, but the rate of increase is no different. And what we saw in New York was, you know, a week, 10 days ago, and we're about 10, 11, 12 days behind them, they sort of broke their curve. And that was one of the challenges. So they were tracking along and then it really accelerated. So we don't have an answer yet as to which curve will we follow here. That model goes anywhere from about 2% of the population getting infected and numbers that are very challenging, but, but we'll manage through them for the hospitals, you know, up to 13 to 15% being infected, which is, you know, very, very challenging. Yeah, and getting wow. field hospitals and everything else. The fundamental thing is the social distancing following, following everything that, that's happening to keep us down on that 2% curve, maybe even lower than 2% curve. And we're going to be okay. I mean, it's going to be a challenging month for sure, but we're going to be okay. And so, I mean, that just, I, you know, to stay, to stay hopeful and positive, huh. when I hear that, you, you can immediately go to the dark places right. in your mind right. and think right. about all the bad. But it also is a warning to not be complacent that all this is happening in these other places and we seem to be okay in Houston. Yeah. And, and that's not the time that you start to loosen up and become Relax. careless or else right. that surge then really, like you said, could take off. Yeah, well said. And my biggest fear, honestly, is at some point we all look at the data and go, oh, that doesn't look as bad as we thought. And we sort of wildly and carelessly release the restrictions. And then we have a massive bounce back in a way that is completely out of control. And we, all that we've done this last you know, few weeks and a few more is, is almost for, it's not for naught because we will have controlled it during that time, but then we have the whole same thing start again. It's going to be really important. You know, yeah. if we're sitting there 
celebrating the fact that our curve didn't look like New York or New Orleans or Detroit. Um, that's going to be because we did the right things as a community. And then we have to continue to do the right things to kind of ease out of those restrictions or we're just going to go back and look like that. And that's, that's honestly my biggest fear. Mm -hmm. we, we, we've said oftentimes as a group of CEOs, look, if people criticize us at the end for being, you know, yeah. oh, wow, this didn't turn out that bad. And, you know, they criticize us that we were overly worried you know, frankly, that we will have succeeded because at that point we're going to look at it and say, yeah, the reason it feels that way is because we did all the right things and didn't end up on that other curve. I agree. I agree. It seems so important to, to be listening to the medical professionals at this time, right? There seems to be the, uh, so much opinion that's there. And when I see, when I, when I listen to you and to other medical es experts, it seems to be the same thing over and over and over, which is physically distancing um, um, and acting with a lot of precaution in these days to come. Uh, and that's the that's the only way we're going to be able to make it through together in this and not overwhelm um, the, the the Texas Medical kind of center as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yes. I mean, you will you will hear and I know you are hearing you mentioned amazing consistency among medical professionals. There's really no reputable medical professors out there, professionals out there saying we've we're way overdoing this, folks. We need to do something different. All of us, you know, of course understand there's many different competing priorities there's many different uh, issues that have to be balanced you know we don't want to be in a great another great depression and have all the issues that happen you know health related and others which can happen in that scenario as well but really as we look at this from people's health right now if we don't do this right the first time it gets prolonged it gets dragged out and the economic side and the sacrifice we're all making together actually gets longer and worse and so uh, we we believe strongly that you know do it right do it right the first time a lot of work's going to have to be done. There'll be fits and you know fits and starts and, and difficulties um, figuring out how to sort of let go of the restrictions and get to the next step. But you know we're yeah. we collectively the American society is very and, and the world as well. We're very there's a lot of ingenuity, a lot of uh, you know working for the common good. I have no doubt we'll sort those things out, but they're going to take time and patience for everybody to deal with. No mm. question. I know you're real busy and I just, uh, one or two more questions and then sure. uh, we will let you go get back to work. Cause I'm sure that's all yeah. you're doing these days <laughs> is staying busy. Yeah, it's not a lot of downtime these days. No, I I'm with you. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that someone asked is, would you, where would you point people for respectable things to read or to look at? You know, we, we tell our people all the time, be real, real careful. It's, you know, media can be very biased on all sides of your ideological spectrum. So you have to keep that in mind. But if a layperson was looking to read some materials or find some resources about this, or even a medical professional, we have a lot of medical professionals too that want to learn more or know, are there any ideas for that or, or places you would recommend they go? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the CDC site's actually pretty good. You can go to coronavirus.gov. And, you know, there's lots of resources and lots of data that are there. Uh, Johns Hopkins has an outstanding tracker. So if you want to look at numbers and look at some of that, just Google Johns Hopkins COVID tracker. You'll find that. If you want modeling, the IHME, that's the University of Washington, uh, is a great modeling site. Um, Google COVID IHME or University of Washington tracker, mm -hmm. and you, you'll find that. And you can look state by state. Uh, you can look at the U.S. as a whole. You can look at the assumptions yeah. they're, they're doing. 
you know, and then, you know, stick with either health institutions, so some of the major academic institutions like Houston Methodist and others in the Texas Medical Center or others around the country. Most of us are, uh, have a lot of useful information on the site, a lot of pointing uh, of good data, you know, and then stick to the reputable news media. Um, you know, that doesn't mean there won't be some alarmist or sometimes some, you know, so read everything with a grain of salt. But, you know, when you're, whether you're looking at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, or you're looking at, you know, major broadcast networks, or you're looking at, you know, the big, the big three kind of cable networks. I know they all come from things on a difficult, different political spectrum, perhaps. But when you look at the numerical data, the opinion data, you know, use, use your judgment, obviously, but I'd stick with the reputable sources by and large, you know, they, well, you may not, I may not always agree with some of the opinions and other things that's useful to understand and understand differing points of views with that. Um, but mostly you're sticking with people who are sourcing their material. They're not publishing things that are, you know, really factually untrue. I have seen a lot of bad information out there, you know, particularly through social media and others, you know, a lot of those have been pushed back, but you know, there's a whole set of rumors around, I think it was Stanford and later, or I forget if it was Hopkins or Mass General, I think it wasn't theirs, but people would quickly say, oh, look at what, you know, so-and-so at Stanford said, and it was putting out a lot of bad information. So be, you know, go in eyes wide open and make sure you're thinking about where the sources are coming from. Yeah, and someone else was asking about elective surgeries those are a lot of those, I guess, are turned off because, like you said, to create space, when is there a timeline on when those are turned back on for some people, or yeah. do we know? I'm I'm hoping in May, but that's going to depend on a lot of things that that we talk about. So when we're on that downside of the curve, putting aside the governor's order for a second, I'll come back to that. But just when we're on the downside of the curve, we're going to make a good judgment call about what's best for. Uh, you know, the individuals. Um, obviously, we don't want to defer things too long to where there's harm. And so all the decisions to, uh, you know, to delay elective surgeries, are they're not done in a fiat, you know, just blanket way. They are done where we look at categories. We say, you know, there's not a lot of good reasons to do this kind of surgery. However, there needs to be an exception because a clinician looks at that and decides the harm outweighs the benefit of delay um, or, or the other way around. Um, so when we get on the other side of the curve, that calculus will start changing. I say that with the caveat of very rightly so the governor made that order for the state. And so, of course, that'll need to be released. Um, you know, my guess is that may get released even sooner than we are comfortable with truly releasing everything. And we'll have a very judicious, thoughtful, stepwise process um, to, to bring those kinds of activities mm -hmm. on. Well, I want you to know, I think that everyone that responded back and knowing that we were going to be talking to you wanted to also express yeah, yeah. their support and whatever it is that people can do to be helpful to medical professionals mm -hmm. for, for you and the support of you and everyone else down there. You just need to know that people are very, very appreciative. You see these videos of, of shift changes in New York or in Atlanta and people coming out of their apartments on their balconies and cheering and, yeah. and you guys really are on the front That's line right. of this. You are the, the modern heroes right now. And I hope that you will let everyone know on your staff. I know we're, we're going to set up a time to talk with Bob, uh, Kidd, and Stacey Ald about the pastoral care and spiritual care of this at some point. But just want you to know on the medical side, there's so many people that appreciate all yes. that you're doing. And I hope that you will continue to let yeah. them know that that's a, there's a lot of support out there. That's right. You. That means a great deal. And, and you know, the, the people on our front lines, they, they truly are heroic. I mean, yeah. they come here, you know, think of the hardships and the, the worries and the concerns and the anxieties, and the exhaustion. You know, it's, it's, it's not an easy time for the people on the front lines. 
but you know, what I hear over and over again is this is what I trained all my life to do. You know, this is what I was called to do from our colleagues. And uh, it's really humbling and, and amazing to watch them just, you know, do the right things and step together. And, you know, for, for an institution like Houston Methodist, you know, that obviously is faith-based, you know, that, that has wonderful values, watching people live that out every single day. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It really is. Well, having served on the spiritual care committee, um, just the, the way Methodist goes about the ethics aspect of making these decisions for families and the spiritual care is, is equally important to everything else that goes on. What, uh, before you go, mm-hmm. any question we didn't ask you or anything that you'd lift up that you would think is important? No, I think you asked uh, you know, a lot of great questions. A couple, couple other thoughts. You know, there's a, a, co- a few other drugs out there that are being used, whether HIV drug like remdesivir, in which we're in a study and can also get compassionate use. That's an IV drug for really mm-hmm. sick people. You know, and then you hear a lot of the drugs. And I guess the one, the one cautionary note to folks is, you know, you'll hear a lot of optimism about some of these approaches, hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, you know, the, the malaria drug, oh, Plaquenil, yeah. or rheumatoid arthritis. While we have some cautious optimism, we're far from certain that those work. And so we're working very hard to try and sort that out, try and figure out if it works. But there was also a lot of data about that plus a Z-pack, azithromycin. You know, the reality is the combination actually can be quite dangerous from a cardiac uh, electrical standpoint um, and uh, is not one we really want to encourage people using as an outpatient. We might use Mm -hmm. it as an inpatient, but there we're able to monitor and care for somebody. So use caution as you as you interpret those kinds of um, things as well but i think there's you know hope that some of those treatments may hopefully come out and then you know the other thing we didn't talk about is the vaccine and there is fast furious work being done on vaccines it's 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 honestly a triumph of medical science that for almost a month now pretty better part of month that we have vaccines in clinical trials around the world which that's three months after the vaccine showed up the typical vaccine took 15 to 20 years to create before. And so it's very exciting to see how quickly that's working. But the reality is it still takes a long time because eventually we're talking about, you know, vaccinating hundreds of millions, if not really billions of people on the planet. And so to do that at that scale, you really have to make sure that you've gone through the right processes to make sure what you're giving them is safe. Vaccines are incredibly safe because they're so well studied. And because we study populations and figure out the best formulation and best efficacy, but that's why it's going to take, you know, 12 to 18 months to, mm. to get a vaccine. And it's, it's, it's frankly going to be amazing. We got one that quickly compared to the rest of, you know, recorded history. Um, but uh, that, that will ultimately be something that's very critical. Nice. Well, Mark, Mark, can we just have a prayer with you real quick before we let you go? I would on love your that. Work? We'll take every prayer from everybody out there. <laughs> pray for all, all of us and pray for our population. We really will. Let, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you so much for Mark Boom and for all of the leadership at Methodist Hospital yeah. and for all the leadership at the Texas Medical Center. I pray for the doctors and the nurses and the health, all the health care workers, all the the mental health professionals and spiritual care professionals, everyone that's working in every level and every aspect of the hospital work and public health. I pray for them for strength, for their families, for safety. And Lord, we pray for an end to this virus and pray that you would give us the strength and the comfort and the wisdom and the discernment to be able to take the next right steps as we listen to these that you've gifted and given these skills and graces to help us make informed decisions. We lift up Mark to you and we just pray for him and for his family in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Mark, thank you you so much for being with us, brother. And you just got our support. Anything we can do, people here want to know if you need anything or 
you know, we've got our folks that will want, they want to sew masks or whatever they can do. I mean, so just yeah. let us Thank know. You. Okay. Thank you. We will. And we'll send you the uh, information about the donating of the plasma. So that would be great. 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 Thanks Thank brother. You so much. You d- be well. Thank you. Blessings. Be well. Thank you. All right. Thank you. What a great guy. That was amazing. That was amazing. Can you, can you imagine being the president or CEO of a major hospital in a time like this? I mean, you're already, your job already is probably overwhelming. And then this happens and this is your job is 24 seven. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. And he's having to take in so much information, disseminate it quickly to like business communities, to pastors to you know, this is why he is such a great resource. And I'm really glad we were able to get him because he is, he is resourcing and talking with governmental leaders, uh, business leaders, oil and gas companies, and nationally, but particularly in Houston to help make decisions that we need to make. It's pretty amazing. He indicates that we are going to get, we are going to have some type of a surge in Houston. How bad that will be is going to be on all of us and how seriously we take the, the social distancing. Well, Matt, what are you doing this week? Same thing you did last week? In the week before, I know I don't have no idea what that is, John. It's it's gone into a vault somewhere that I can't. I don't even remember. I know what I'm doing this week, though. What are you doing this week? So, um, so we've got some self care stuff that we're doing with with uh, groups, um, both recovery groups and mental health groups in the church. And then I'm doing my Bible study on Friday. I'm preaching mm-hmm. the uh, sunrise service. It's Easter this week, yes. which is just crazy. And so, and, and, uh, and so I, we're both preaching, but not on, not on Easter the same Sunday. <laughs> yeah, not on Easter Sunday. <laughs> and so that's really odd. Well, but that we're keeping social distance. Yeah, that's right. So do you have a link for Zoom or oh, any way yeah. that someone can sign up to do that? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, our Zoom Bible study, uh, on Friday from at noon, um, you can get on, uh, Facebook and, uh, uh, hitchhiking through the Bible, also through the Chapelwood website, it's uh, listed there as one of the resources on Friday, and um, and, and then also our um, we're doing a small group for folks. We're kind of in recovery, but it's recovery from anything. So we've we've got we've got a bunch of folks showing up there on, on Tuesday from uh, two to three as well. And all that and all that's on chapwood.org. That's right. Slash stay connected. Well, I, I'm, I'm waking up in the morning at no dark 30 to drive up to Norman, Oklahoma to mm. move my daughter's uh, dorm room, to empty all that to bring it home. And that has to be completed in order for us to be officially checked out and then to determine, you know, will we be prorated room and board and all that? Who knows? I mean, yeah. it's just not something you expected to do uh, on Holy Week to be given a short little window when to come up and do that get out <laughs> it, it, it will at least make uh the rhythm will be different yeah so yeah that'll yeah. be that'll be unique and and preaching you know we're, we're participating in, in filming good friday uh, right. service and then also easter services um at different times before easter sunday which is really unique but I, i've been thinking about the first easter and you had in, in john's gospel mary by herself in the garden or in, in the other gospels, just uh, a couple of the women that went to the, yeah. the tomb and found it empty. 
And I always think about Mary trying to touch Jesus. And he says, do not touch me for I have not yet ascended. And I think their social distancing, do not touch me, (laughs) (laughs) you know, stay, keep your distance. But then also when they ran back to the, the disciples in the, and they're gathered together in their small group in quarantine. And I'm thinking this is going to be Easter like it was in the the first time. That's right. For all of us. That's right. Right. And a lot of, um, a deep sense of dread and, and unsuredness, right? And, and in the midst, Jesus continues to say, it's I, do not be afraid, it's me. Shows up in the midst of them. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad we were able to do this and spend some time with mm-hmm. Mark. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy.